Hi again, everyone. I'm Janet B. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Really happy to be here. This is actually one of my favorite talks um, about the beautiful step five promises, the nearness of our creator. But first, especially since there's a bunch of new people here, I'll tell you just a tiny bit about me and do a quick, maybe 10 minute run through the first four steps so that we don't talk about step five in a vacuum. Um, I think it's richer if we kind of get the context. So my hope always when I talk is to convince people that the age of miracles is still with us, that there is a God and that he is alive and well and launching search and rescue missions for us addicts. So just again, two minutes on me. I first came into OA when I was in high school, already a full-blown compulsive eater. You know the drill. I stole food. I stole money for food. Um, I was binging and purging up to six times a day, and I had to have my esophagus surgically retightened because of the abuse I heaped on it. And people sometimes show their pictures, their before and after. And one of these days, I have to like Google um, Night of the Living Dead or The Walking Dead um, and get some like, and if there's like some female like zombie with dead eyes, that would be me. Because even though I look normal, I was a walking dead person. I was a compulsive liar. I made up crazy stories, like cutting myself with a razor and saying I'd been raped, going to the hospital and getting a fake rape exam, swallowing the penicillin so that I wouldn't get syphilis from my fake rapist. I was not well physically, I was not stable mentally, and I certainly wasn't well spiritually, even though I believed in God, um, but I didn't have a relationship with him. And at one point, someone said to me, if, you, if you're like so tight with God, if you have such a great relationship with God, why are you still binging? And I couldn't answer that. I was like, oh my gosh, some, something is radically wrong here. Um, I spent my first seven years in OA binging until I was at an OA convention and someone introduced me to the God who I believed launched a search and rescue mission for me. Um, and once I committed my life to God, it was like a hand literally reached into my soul and yanked out the obsession. And September 30th will be 40 years of being protected by God, by no means perfect, um, but protected, safe and protected from the food. And I am really excited to talk about step five and its promises and its role in helping us find God. Um, but again, like, let's talk about the first steps because obviously if you go into a building, you can't go to five until you pass through either by stairs or an elevator, one through four. So we'll do quick run through. Um, step one, powerlessness. On page 24 of the big book, it says we're unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink or the first compulsive bite. So what they're basically telling us is that our defense against doing something dangerous is our memories, right? Let's say, um, I mean, for me, I'm very allergic to cats. So if I'm about to walk into a pet store, immediately my mind will go grab the data points in my memory that and that say, oh, 
you were near a cat and you had an asthma attack. Oh, you were near a cat and you got a sinus infection a few days later. And it will generate a thought to run across the bridge that connects to my conscious mind to say, stop, don't do it. Cats will give you an asthma attack. But with food, you know, there I would go about to buy a box of cookies, tell myself I'm just going to have one or two. We know how that story ends, right? All 20 were gone, sometimes another box. Um, so there I was about to go down to the Dwayne Reed drugstore to buy my cookies. And in my memory were stored all these data points of you say you're going to eat one or two, but you eat the whole box. You said you were going to eat one or two. You ate the box. You made yourself throw up. You were miserable. Don't do it. And so my mind generates a thought to run across the bridge. Danger, stop. You won't be able to have just one or two. Except unlike with cats, the bridge was broken and the thought couldn't get across. My memory failed to keep me in check. Just like um, Bill Wilson said, he said, no words can tell the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I'd been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. For me, food was my master because I had a broken bridge in my memory. The thoughts couldn't get across. How did it get broken? The big book says, we don't know. And even if we knew, it wouldn't matter. So once my bridge is broken, what do I do? Self-knowledge does not fix it. Desire doesn't fix it. Um, the perfect food plan doesn't fix it. We are people who are 100% hopeless without a miracle. But luckily, this program gives me the formula for a miracle, right? Page 45 says, lack of power is my problem. And then it tells me exactly what my solution is. And it doesn't say my solution is meetings or phone calls or food plans or fellowship. Those are all great, but that's not the solution with a capital S. The solution, the book says, is to find a power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. Um, that's on page 46. And I find those really powerful world, words. The solution is to find a power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. So let's like play detective, right? Go on a, go on a hunt for clues about God. Well, we see that the big book here gives us our first clues about how to find this power greater than me, which will solve my problem. If this power is going to solve my problem, this power must be pretty smart. I had two master's degrees and I couldn't figure it out. This power must also be strong because this illness kicked my butt. So it has to be stronger than me and stronger than the illness. And this power must be able to reason because you can't solve problems if you can't think. So there goes doorknob and wind as higher power because they can't reason or think. Um, and most important, this power must care about me. Otherwise, why would he bother trying to solve my problem? So smart, strong, and cares about me. Okay, that's a power. That's a God who I might be interested in having a relationship with. And page 53 gives us more clues. He can be blocked, so he can be blocked um, by calamity, pomp, worship of other things, and dishonesty. Well, that's helpful, but our book tells us on page 53 that reason only brings us so far. 
So what do we do after we've like gathered the clues after we have evidence? For me, it started with a prayer. Now, why pray? Like why bother praying? Well, prayer is the currency in the spiritual world. In the physical world, if I want a bag of groceries or a tank of gas, I hand the clerk a $20 bill. Money is a currency in the physical world. But obviously, I can't hand God a 20 or a 50 or even a 100 and ask for power over my food obsession. The currency in the spiritual world is prayer. So I prayed. My prayer went like this. God, I've always had fixed ideas of what you were like and how to worship you. I'm willing to admit it's all wrong and start over and let you show me what you're like and how to worship you. And that was really my step three when I surrendered my life to God. Well, on a practical note, what does that look like? It means I'm out of the outcome business. I don't do things to get a result. I do things because I'm obedient to God. Now I say that this is my mission statement. This is what I try to do. I make mistakes every day. And as um, I just texted my sponsor before the meeting and I said, I have to talk to you because um, I've I noticed a really bad defect in myself today. And her response was, you're human, Janet. We all have defects. So again, not perfect, but surrendered. And for an example, I may have a desire that my kids who are 21 go to church. I can have a desire, right? I'm a human being. God created me to have desires but I can't have demands. I can't make that my number one goal because that's being outcome oriented. So I just do what I think God would have me do. I take them to church when they're little. I try to model good behavior, but whether or not they go to church when they're in college is none of my business. And I believe when I die and stand before God, he won't judge me at all by whether I've raised church going kids. He'll just look at my obedience to him and living that way is how I stay sane because my kid, whether or not my kids go to church is not my business. And I have learned the more I work this program, the fewer and fewer or less, the fewer things are any of my business. Most things really aren't. Um, so then I did my fourth step. I looked at my character defects, my resentments, and the hard part of seeing where I was wrong because the big book tells me if I harbor resentments, if I'm a safe harbor for resentments, I'm cut off from the sunlight of the spirit, right? It's like I'm cut off from my spiritual oxygen supply. So a couple of things I avoided doing. I avoided saying all the time, this person is spiritually sick. So I just need to say that and pray for them because that set me on a prideful hilltop. If I have a resentment, there's something wrong with me. And a lot of times it's because I think people should run their lives in a way that makes me happy. With my kids, it was often, I think my kids should make life choices that will make me happy. And that's just selfish and controlling. Or I think I should only have to do things I want to do, selfish and self-centered. And then I looked at my fears and I, you know, we talked on Thursday about what the big book says about fears, that fear is an evil and corroding thread, evil. So I had to look at the reason for my fears. And when I drilled down, I saw I didn't want to be sad or uncomfortable, but this program tells me I have to learn to live with discomfort. So for instance, if I had a fear that my kids won't finish college um, and I look at that fear, if they don't finish college, 
then they won't get good jobs. If they won't get good jobs, they'll have horrible lives. If they have horrible lives, I will be sad. Well, there's quite a bit of dishonest thinking there, right? Me, My playing God mind thinks that no college equals a life of failure, which isn't true. And then I ask, what would God have me do? And it's to realize that my happiness isn't dependent on how well my kids do. And I just have to model good behavior and pray. And by the way, my kids are, well, one is in college. One is not going to college right now. Um, and I don't even know if one doesn't go to church and the other one, I think sometimes does, but I can have peace about it all because it's none of my business. So I finish up my step four with an analysis of my harms, my past relationships, and I craft a sex ideal with God's help. And now, finally, I am ready for step five. So page 72 of the big book starts. It tells me why I have to do a fifth step. And it gives me three reasons. One, I'm trying to get a new attitude. I'm trying to change, to not be such a self-centered person. But look at the second reason. I'm trying to get a new relationship with my creator. See, this program isn't about believing in God. It's about having a relationship with him. And this step is going to help me with that. And number three, to help me with the obstacles in my path. What are the character defects that are blocking me from my new relationship with my creator? And it says, okay, I've already started to see what my defects are. Now they're about to be cast out. Look at that wording cast out. I don't do the casting. God does that. That's how this works. I look at my defects. I admit them, but God removes them. And I think we read these words so often that it's easy to miss out on really the awesomeness of it. Um, these are my defects, a big wall of defects that I've built between myself and God. And what does God do? Does he say, Janet, you built this wall. You caused this mess. So clean it up yourself. But I'll be here waiting for you when you're done. He doesn't. He comes in with a broom and a mop to help me clean it up. That is love. And in the next paragraph, page 72, they tell us another like really important reason why we can't skip this step. It says, if we skip this step, we may not overcome drinking. We may not stop binging. The text says that when people try to avoid this humbling experience, almost invariably they got drunk. Having persevered with the rest of the program, they wondered why they fell. Okay, why'd they fall? Well, by not disclosing everything, they were dishonest. And dishonesty by omission is still dishonesty, right? Top of page 73, it says, these people wondered why they fell. So as an aside, a person should always know why they fall, why they get into relapse. Not doing a thorough fifth step is a cause of relapse. And the AA 12 and 12 goes into great detail on this, pages 55 through 57. Um, after talking about all the different consequences of avoiding step five, including irritability, anxiety, remorse, depression, they conclude by saying, most of us would declare that without a fearless admission of our defects, to another human being, we could not stay sober. It seems plain that the grace of God will not enter to expel our destructive obsessions until we are willing to try this. I mean, that is a strong statement. 
that we have to be honest. And that's why um, in my life, I am ruthless with my self-examinations. If I catch myself doing something wrong, no matter how like ugly or embarrassing, I will tell on myself because I need the grace of God to come in and keep my obsession with food far away from me. Um, and just think of that. God enters to expel the obsession. Like he kicks out the illness, just chases out the food obsession, the way a woman with a broom might tell a cat to just skedaddle. Um, that's our God. And it's always important for me to remember it's the grace of God that got rid of my obsession and keeps it away. Not the hard work I do. Um, I like to compare it to like, as if there's a raging hurricane and my house is flooded and the sheriff's coming around with a bullhorn saying, get to the helicopter. My job is to get to the roof so that the helicopter can rescue me. I can't just say, pick me up by my front door. I mean, I'll drown. Um, but I don't want to be so arrogant as to say that I rescued myself. Like if I can be a little corny, say all I did was climb those 12 steps to my roof so that I could be rescued. So back to the big book, page 73, they say that more than most people, we lead double lives. That was the story of my life, double life. We're like actors. To the outer world, we present our stage character. We want to enjoy a certain reputation, but know in our hearts we don't deserve it. So we've got this guilt. And guilt is only helpful if it encourages us to really admit our character defects. If I take 50 bucks from your wallet and I feel guilty, well, I should feel guilty, then my conscience is doing its job. But that guilt is only helpful if I go to you, confess, and give you the $50 back. But we often carry around a vague sense of guilt and we just beat ourselves up and say, oh, I'm a piece of crap. And we call that humility. That's not humility. If the best definitions of humility are in steps six and seven in the AA 12 and 12. So anyway, the big book goes on to say that alcoholics or for us compulsive eaters are revolted by what we do on our sprees. It says coming to his senses, he is revolted at certain episodes he vaguely remembers, vaguely. We can't be vague. We can't have these boogeymen in the closet and say, well, I think I sort of kind of did some not so nice things in my past. We can't go to God like that. I need to go to God and say, I faked a mugging and went to the hospital here. I lied here. I stole from Susie. I was nasty to Sally. I need to be specific. Why? Because if I don't get these memories out, the big book tells me I end up pushing them far down inside myself. And, and that leads to constant fear and tension, tension, which leads to drinking or binging. So fear and tension, mental, emotional drain. Then the chapter continues by saying, psychologists generally don't help us because we're generally not honest with them. And they keep hammering home saying, we must be entirely honest with someone if we expect to live long and happily in this world. So again, if anyone knows me, they know, um, you know I'm like a reformed smoker. I'm a, you know, who, who like can't stand smoke. I'm a reformed, you know, compulsive liar. And what I have learned is that if we're dishonest, it's like we're taking a big black Sharpie and writing the words, keep out God across our hearts. God will not coexist 
with dishonesty. Um, and a lot of times people are dishonest with their sponsors. And if I'm dishonest with my sponsor, it means I've made an idol or a false God out of my sponsor. Um, I'm better off honest with no sponsor than dishonest with the world's best sponsor. Um, we are people who just have to be honest, whether or not earth people, people who aren't addicts need to be honest. I don't know. Um, but for people like us, it means like no lies, no cheating on husbands, no cheating on taxes. We have to live a life of rigorous honesty. Um, so back to the AA 12 and 12 on page 60, where it says that until we actually sit down and talk aloud about what we so long hidden, our willingness to clean house is still largely theoretical. When we're honest with another person, it confirms that we've been honest with ourselves and with God. So now they're talking about honesty, but they go even further. They say, going it alone in spiritual matters is dangerous. Sure, it's easy for me to say, yeah, God, I faked a mugging and I'm sorry, than to tell another person. Um, it's harder because there's fear. What if my sponsor doesn't like me? What if she judges me? Um, and just as an aside, a sponsor is supposed to make sure the sponsee feels safe enough to confide anything. I always tell my sponsees before a fifth step that anything she tells me goes with me to the grave. Um, and I'm not supposed to be a judge. By letting my sponsees know some of the crazy things I've done, that helps them feel safe. And just as an aside, in an age where a lot of us are sponsoring long distance, I find it helpful to do the fifth step and most of the step work on FaceTime or Skype or Zoom because we can just form a deeper bond with people. So again, big book, pay, I'm sorry, AA 12 and 12, page 60. It says, it is worth noting that people of very high spiritual development almost always insist on checking with friends or spiritual advisors the guidance they feel they've received from God. I mean, when I think of someone who has a high spiritual development, I think of Mother Teresa, and she always checked. She didn't assume that just any thought she got was from God. Um, surely then a novice ought not lay himself open to the chance of making foolish, perhaps tragic blunders in this fashion. While the comment or advice of others may be by no means infallible, it is likely to be far more specific than any direct guidance we may receive while we are still so inexperienced in establishing contact with a power greater than ourselves. I mean, again, those words, we are establishing contact with a power greater than ourselves. The power that flung the stars into the sky wants to have contact, wants a relationship with me. And if I'm doing step five, I am on my way. Um, the 12 and 12 says the next, next thing I'm to do is to find the right person to do this with. Generally, it's someone who's done this work before, usually our sponsors, but the big book makes some caveats. Um, page 74, it says that we actually can do our fifth step with a member of our family but we can't disclose anything to them, which will hurt them or make them unhappy. That we have no right to save our own skin at another person's expense. And I think, by the way, that's a rule for both step five and for life. I have no right to save my own skin at someone else's expense. I have to put the welfare of others 
first, right? Our book says we must be hard on ourselves, but considerate of others. Being hard on ourselves gets a bad rap. Um, and we're not supposed to be hard on ourselves by just, oh, I feel guilty. I'm a terrible person. But we are supposed to be ruthless about admitting our character defects and admitting where we're wrong. I remember one time I caught myself thinking, I hope bad things happen to so-and-so. Um, I called my sponsor. I confessed my mean-spiritedness, asked God to forgive me, to remove the defect. And then I said a prayer for that person. Um, I think that's what it means to be hard on ourselves. So the next paragraph gives us the answer to our little big book trivia question. What's the only step we're allowed to postpone? And that's step five, but only if there isn't a suitable person around. That tells us we are supposed to go through these steps you know, as quickly as we can. Um, and it says, once we have the right person, we go to it holding nothing back. Um, so we hold nothing back. It says on page 75, we pocket our pride and boy, do we pocket our pride. And then the promises. These are to me, my favorite promises are the fifth step promises. But just like I didn't want to talk about step five in a vacuum, I don't want to talk about the fifth step promises in a vacuum, because to me, I think it is so cool to see the progression of the promises. So the first promises are with step two. There's no step one promises, by the way. There, I'm just admitting I'm powerless and my life is unmanageable. It's like I went to a doctor, admitted I had diabetes. Okay, I admitted it. But just admitting it alone, nothing changes. Remember, the big book tells me lack of power is my problem. So what I need is to get power. And these steps are like a continuum to getting more and more power. Page 46 talks about us getting our first infusion of power with step two. It says, as soon as we admit the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we began, see, we're just beginning there. We began to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction, provided we took other simple steps. So once I say, maybe there's a God, and maybe this God can help me, and I start doing what I think this God would have me if he in fact existed, I start getting power and direction, just enough power and direction to get me to step three. And then step three, top of page 63, more promises. It says we have a new employer with a capital E, so meaning God. Um, being all powerful, he provides what we need if, so this is a conditional promise, he'll provide what I need if, says if we keep close to him and perform his work well. Then it tells me that established on this footing, I become less and less interested in myself. So the spiritual experience is starting here. A spiritual experience is when God rewires my heart to make me more like him. So instead of being selfish and self-centered like Janet is, I become more tolerant and loving like my creator is. And all I can say is I hope God is a good electrician because he's got a whole lot more wiring he's got to do in me. We become less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we become interested in seeing what we can contribute to life. Then it says this, listen, as we felt new power flow in, so we get more power, right? We got a little bit in step two, and now we get more in step three. And then just, 
he throws this in just because that's the kind of God he is. Peace of mind. We discover we can face life successfully and we become conscious of his presence. We start realizing, oh yeah, there really is a God. And he's not just up in the clouds somewhere. He didn't just create the universe and now spending the rest of eternity watching Netflix. It says we begin to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, and the hereafter. We're reborn. Then the four-step promises, the bottom of page 70, say we've now begun to comprehend the terrible destructiveness of resentments and have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies. It says, we hope you are convinced that God can remove the self-will that blocks you from him. So now we go beyond belief. Now we have trust. Um, and then we get to the step five promises. These are, again, my favorite. After step five, we're told that we are delighted. We can look the world in the eye. That was my experience. I felt as if I'd been nearsighted all my life and someone gave me a pair of glasses. Trees just looked greener. That's the best way I can describe it. Um, and if you've experienced it, you know it. It says we can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. Um, to me, that's such a great visual. Like I like the beach, but remember you come up from the beach and you brush off your bathing suit and the sand falls from you. Maybe not all of it at once, but it starts. And that's what happens here. And then this, we begin to feel the nearness of our creator. So not just like a, an awareness, we know that God is near. Whether I'm going through stress or surgery or the pain of rejection, God is right with me. And we, it says we may have had certain spiritual beliefs. That was me. I was, wasn't an agnostic. I didn't think I was because I always believed in God, but I was a practical agnostic. That knowledge did nothing for me. If I were a diabetic and believed that insulin could help me, but never injected it, it would do me no good. So it says we had beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. God rewiring our hearts. And it says the feeling that the drink problem, or for us, the food problem, the feeling that it's disappeared will often come strongly, often. I take that to mean more than 50% of the time, we're not obsessing about food. It says we feel we are on the broad highway, walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. And by the way, I know that sounds pretty awesome, but when we finish step nine, it tells us that we will seldom, that means hardly ever, be interested in liquor or food, not on our food plan. Um, and when we're tempted, we recoil automatically. So stick around because the miracle gets better. Then the AA 12 and 12 actually has some more fifth step promises that aren't in the big book that I thought were really cool. Um, Page 57 tells us that we are people who are tortured by loneliness. And with this step, we begin to get rid of that loneliness. Oh, yes, the book says the fellowship helps us in a social sense. But even with the fellowship, we still suffered many of the old pains of anxious apartness. That was me. I could be in a room with 100 people and feel like I was the only person on the planet. What's the solution? Again, the 12 and 12 says it clearly. Step five was the answer. It was the beginning of true kinship with man and God. And more promises. Page 58 of the 12 and 12 says, 
We began to get the feeling that we could be forgiven no matter what we had thought and done. I mean, if I'm telling my sponsor or a friend all the horrible things I've thought and done, and she looks at me the same way, I start to feel maybe I can be forgiven. It also tells us that it's often while working on this step that we first feel truly able to forgive others. So we start being able to receive and give forgiveness. So page 58 continues on. It says we start getting more humility. And I love the definition there. They define humility as a clear recognition of what and who we really are, followed by a sincere attempt to become what we could. Page 59 has another promise. Like they just keep coming. Um, it says only by discussing ourselves holding back nothing, only by being willing to take advice and accept direction, could we set foot on the road to straight thinking, solid honesty, and genuine humility. Pretty interesting, right? Straight thinking. But of course, chapter five of our big book tells us that once the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. So by doing the spiritual work, my thinking starts to straighten out. And step five in the 12 and 12, ends with this. This feeling of being at one with God and man, this emerging from isolation through the open and honest sharing of our terrible burden of guilt brings us to a resting place where we may prepare ourselves for the following steps toward a full and meaningful sobriety, toward a full and meaningful sobriety. That word toward, we get to the point where we're no longer running from food, we're running toward a full and meaningful sobriety, toward an ever-deepening relationship with God. I'm not running away from, I'm running toward. And if someone's sitting here today who still isn't even sure that there even is a God, you can start with the maybe prayer. It can go something like this. God, and by the way, you don't have to call him God. Um, God has many names. God I don't know if you're there. And if you're there, I don't know if you care about me. But if you're there and if you care, I need help. And then we start doing what we think God, if he existed, would want. And the worst that could happen is that you're just talking to the air. But what if there really is a God? What if there is? And what if that prayer is the currency, is the catalyst that allows God to start the renovation project in our hearts so that we have a spiritually spiritual experience, so that he rewires our souls, that our plans and priorities just take a back seat to what we believe are his plans and priorities. And with this, when this happens, the food obsession can't live in this, that kind of soul soil. Um, because really and truly, like there is a God we have found out over and over, there is a God and he is still alive and well and performing miracles. And with that, I will pass.